Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, unheard voices from anti-fascist activists who organized a massive protest to what turned out to be a very small Unite the Right to rally in front of the White House. If we weren't here, these people would be celebrating a mass victory on the very day that they killed Heather Heyer. On the very day that they ran a car We also talked to Jeanette Charles of Venezuela Analysis about the attempted assassination of President Nicolas Maduro and the corporate media's war against Venezuela. All that and more, coming up. When the black community is under attack, what do we do? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. A federal court in Montana sided this week with opponents of the Keystone XL pipeline and mandated a full environmental impact review for the proposed controversial project. Trump reversed the Obama administration's decision to block the Trans-Canada pipeline, which would run through Alberta and Saskatchewan and Canada, as well as Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska. Regulators in Nebraska approved a new path for the pipeline that was not part of the federal government's 2014 environmental impact statement. So on Wednesday, U.S. District Judge Brian Morris ordered a full review of the new plan. Opponents of Keystone XL celebrated Morris's ruling as a step toward permanently blocking the project. Greenpeace USA climate and energy campaigner Diana Best said, quote, no matter how much the Trump administration wants Keystone XL to be built, the ill-fated pipeline is still far from a done deal, she said, and added, quote, The judge was right to order another environmental review, as this project would worsen the effects of climate change, risk poisoning water, and violate indigenous sovereignty, end quote. And related, an auction for more than 14,000 offshore drilling leases on Wednesday received little enthusiasm from oil and gas companies. The Interior Department managed to sell fewer than 1% of the tracks, making the auction even less successful than its last sale in March, when just over 1% of leases went to buyers. Earlier this week, more than 60 cities and counties in California announced their official opposition to drilling off the state's coasts. Quote, California communities reject offshore drilling and are building a wall of opposition to Trump's reckless agenda, said Blake Capcho, an organizer at the Center for Biological Diversity. The setback for these fossil fuel projects was good news for the young activists who descended on the Democratic National Committee this week to denounce the DNC's reversal of its policy on not taking donations from fossil fuel companies. A group also visited likely Democrat 2020 candidates for president to ask them to sign a pledge rejecting donations from the fossil fuel industry. Jesse Meisenhelter from Portland, Oregon, 
spoke about the impacts of climate change in her state outside the office of Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley. For Oregon's economy and our city's health, protecting our natural resources is critical. Those natural resources have already been impacted by our changing world through the devastating fires in 2017 that burned the entire Oregon Gorge, never to be the same in my lifetime. As I'm here with all of you guys, 70 new fires erupted just last weekend, and currently Oregonians are being evacuated from their homes. According to Sunrise, more than 900 candidates nationally have already signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, including Senator Dianne Feinstein and Senator Bernie Sanders. In other health news this week, a study by the Environmental Working Group of dozens of popular oat-based breakfast foods were found to contain the chemical glyphosate. Glyphosate, commonly known as the weed killer Roundup, is classified as a probable carcinogen by the World Health Organization and was listed last year as a chemical known to cause cancer. Quaker Simply Granola, Giant Instant Oatmeal, Quaker Dinosaur Eggs Instant Oatmeal, and Quaker Steel Cut Oats had some of the highest levels of the chemical. Monsanto, the maker of Roundup, claims that glyphosate and Roundup are not unsafe for humans, but a jury in California vehemently disagreed with them last week, ruling in favor of a man who blamed Roundup for causing his cancer. More than 500 immigrant children remain separated from their parents, many of whom have already been deported, despite a June federal court ruling requiring the Trump administration to reunite all families by July 26th. Since the administration missed that deadline, immigrant rights groups and critical lawmakers sent a letter this week expressing extreme frustration over the prolonged separation. Senator Kamala Harris, Democrat of California, joined by 16 other Democrats and Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, sent the letter to Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen on Tuesday demanding immediate action to reunite the immigrant families torn apart and detained under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy. The letter presents Nielsen three solutions to speed up the process. It says DHS should use humanitarian parole to reunify families with deported parents abroad. That DHS should also adopt a presumption of reunification for families with parents now deemed ineligible. And that DHS should ensure that no parents who relinquish their rights to reunification under coercion or duress are removed. More than 70% of the 539 children that remain in government custody, according to the letter, are there because their parents have been deported, and many such parents are now hiding in their home countries from the very persecutors they fled in coming to the United States to seek protection. Hence the suggestion that DHS offer these parents humanitarian parole. Another 87 children's parents have been deemed ineligible for reunification, yet in many cases the government has failed to provide detailed information regarding its allegations. The letter demands that the agency immediately provide such details and provide parents the opportunity to offer a rebuttal with the help of an attorney. The remaining 34 children are in custody because their parents relinquished their right to reunification. The letter states that lawmakers are alarmed 
by allegations which the American Civil Liberties Union has put forth in court that Trump officials misled or coerced these parents to sign such waivers ahead of their deportation. Quote, in sum, we strongly urge DHS to take all available actions as quickly as possible to reunify all families that have been separated for an un- unacceptably long time as a result of this administration's zero-tolerance policy, the letter concludes. In related immigration news, completing a month-long probe into allegations of abuse at a detention center in Staunton, Virginia, state investigators confirmed that immigrant children were strapped to chairs with bags placed over their head, as several had alleged, but claimed that this treatment did not meet the definition of abuse. Several immigrants, some as young as 14, alleged in June that staffers at the Shenandoah Valley Juvenile Center had beaten them while they were handcuffed and placed them in solitary confinement for long periods of time. A child development specialist at the facility also told the Associated Press she saw several children there with broken bones. The Washington Lawyers Committee said Monday that the investigation was deeply flawed. The committee was adamant that its case would proceed as the report confirmed that the young immigrants' accusations were true. And the conditions of life for Palestinian children was in the news this week as a report obtained by The Intercept proves that the deadly Israeli missile strike that killed four Palestinian boys on a beach in Gaza in 2014 could have been avoided. And because of the Trump administration's targeted cuts to the United Nations, the agency dealing with Palestinian refugees may not be able to open schools for a half a million children because it has run out of money. Because of these compounding human rights abuses, the boycott divestment sanctions movement against Israel is gaining more support. Chantel James attended an info session this week and filed this report. At the Mount Pleasant Library Thursday night, Jewish Voice for Peace and the Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America hosted a session called BDS 101, The Palestinian Struggle for Freedom, Justice, and Equality. Organizers gave presentations that outlined their approach for calling the State of Israel to accountability for its human rights violations against Palestinians, then facilitated a community conversation. BDS stands for Boycott Divestment Sanctions, and the members of the BDS movement and Occupation Free DC drew the real connection between police brutality here in the district and Israeli state violence as D.C. police leaders have in fact participated in trainings with the Israeli military. So whether we're talking about black Palestinian solidarity, uh, feminism, indigenous liberation, LGBTQ struggles, uh, labor unions, etc., essentially every single one of those uh, is connected to Palestine in one way or another. So one thing the BDS movement can do is actually help challenge other oppressions. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And finally, in culture and media, the controversial proposed merger between Sinclair Media and the Tribune Company is totally dead, and the banning of conspiracy theorist Alex Jones from Apple, Spotify, and YouTube has increased debate about violations of First Amendment rights of non-mainstream media. In theaters, Spike Lee's new joint, Black Klansmen, about a detective who infiltrated that hate group in the 1970s, is a critical and box office success. Happening in D.C. is the African Diaspora Film Festival, August 17th through the August 20th at George Washington University's Marvin Center. 
And the fourth annual Chuck Brown Day is happening Saturday, August 18th, 3 to 7 p.m. at the Chuck Brown Memorial Park in Northeast Washington's Langdon Park. And finally, radio stations here in D.C. have been airing musical tributes to the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, who joined the ancestors at the age of 76 on Thursday. Aretha graced us with a deep well of sound that we drew from as truth that helped us to grieve loss or stand up for freedom, demand respect, or laugh with joy at riding in a pink Cadillac. Rest in power, Queen Aretha. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, what's really happening in Venezuela? Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. 
The August 4th apparent drone assassination attempt on Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has received minimal news coverage and even less analysis in the corporate media. And in the past week, Facebook suspended, then restored, apparently without explanation, two critical websites associated with Venezuela, the group Venezuela Analysis and the network Telesor, which just had its Facebook page restored Wednesday morning. Joining me to discuss Venezuela and Venezuela media matters is Jeanette Charles, International Solidarity Liaison with VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Thank you for joining me today, Jeanette. Thank you for the invitation. And I want to first ask you to update us about what is happening in the investigation into this assassination attempt. Maduro said that the preliminary investigation indicates that many of those responsible for the attack, the financiers, the planners, live in the United States and in Florida. And this week, he said he's willing to allow the FBI to investigate this assassination attempt. So what's your take on and what's the latest? Well, the latest information um, is that 34 people have been identified in relation to the assassination attempt against Nicolás Maduro that happened on August 4th at a military commemoration event where there were very high-level political and military officials as well as hundreds of military um, cadets and soldiers. Um, just so folks know, seven National Guard were also injured um, during the event. And essentially, 34 people have been identified. 14 of those people have been arrested and have appeared in court. And in regards to Venezuela and Nicolás Maduro's invitation or acceptance of the FBI participating in the investigation, it's to investigate the links that are connected to, as you mentioned, the, the support, whether it be financial or otherwise, based in Miami. On the day of the assassination attempt, Nicolás Maduro declared in front of the country, and I quote, they have tried to kill me today, and everything points towards right-wing forces, the Venezuelan ultra-right-wing, in alliance with Colombian ultra-right-wing, and the name of Juan Manuel Santos is behind this. And mm. so also in addition to U.S. connections, there's also considerable Colombian opposition forces that are also tied to this investigation and this assassination attempt. And different political leaders um, of the political opposition within Venezuela have also been identified, including former National Assembly President Julio Borges, who lives in Bogota, Colombia. Now, most Americans probably will not really get this news. The coverage has been very scant, and a lot of it has been kind of mocking, actually seem to, seeming to doubt that it was an actual assassination attempt, and really kind of jumping ahead of the game and expressing concern for those charged uh, or arrested as opposed to uh, getting to the heart of the matter about the actual assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, indeed. Most of the corporate um, media response to the assassination attempt has really minimized the magnitude of this situation. You know, had these drones been successful in assassinating not only Nicolás Maduro, but other high-ranking officials, um, we can only imagine the gravity of that damage in Venezuela and for the region. And so it is quite 
shocking in many ways that corporate media continues to attack Venezuela. However, it's not surprising knowing the ways in which corporate media has, you know, con has consistently scrutinized and demonized um, the Bolivarian process and Venezuela over the trajectory of its process, um, which is why, you know, our news source, Venezuela Analysis and Telesur, as you mentioned, are, you know, two of the most reliable sources in English that try to present the situation in Venezuela with more nuance, with uh, more progressive, um, you know, perspectives, and also, particularly in the case of Venezuela Analysis, provide content um, on, you know, every day um, that is really rooted in a grassroots narrative as well. So working people, teachers, um, Afro-Venezuelans, women, feminist groups, students, youth, uh, which is something that is not present in uh, corporate media or large, or, or in general, independent media sources, um, largely in the United States or other English language networks. That brings me to the whole issue of the Facebook pages. Can you tell us what happened with your Facebook page and the kinds of things that you had up on the page uh, and like what you know just when this happened yes yeah, so last Thursday our Facebook page for Venezuela analysis was um, arbitrarily and ambiguously taken down um, we submitted a request for information and also challenged why our page was taken down we never received any sort of formal response Though our page was reinstated almost a few hours later, we found out in the early morning and, you know, by, you know, late, late afternoon, early evening, our page was back online. And essentially our Facebook page, we share our news analysis, video interviews, um, podcasts, everything that deals with um, Venezuela and the work that we are accompanying and trying to cover um, for English language audiences. The week um, that our Facebook page was taken down was the same week, you know, subsequent to the assassination attempt. And the last piece that we actually uploaded to our Facebook was one that directly critiqued the mocking and the ridiculing that we saw in corporate media um, in regard to the assassination attempt. Uh, in general, as I mentioned prior, we, you know, tried the best that we can to give people the information and the resources to sift through the questions and the news that they want to know coming out of Venezuela, which is something that clearly Facebook um, is concerned or threatened by and that we know corporate media is, you know, adamantly preventing um, being exposed in, you know, mainstream audiences. So um, that was somewhat, that was pretty much what happened to our page last week, and we are definitely very concerned about what this could mean in the future, not only for our work, but also for independent journalists and grassroots organizations in Venezuela and other parts of the world, and even within the United States, that are challenging the status quo. And I think for our organization and others that are doing the type of work that's really rooted in collective liberation, we definitely need to continue to call out um, you know, these moments, and at least for Venezuela Analysis, we had an outpour of support. Um, you know, folks wrote on our Twitter page or, you know, tweeted at us, uh, sent us emails, and also, you know, shared uh, hashtags and support um, across Facebook, um, which I think, you know, that pressure also played a huge factor in seeing the restoration of our page within a few hours. So finally, I want to uh, get to the action this week around solidarity uh, with Venezuela against these sanctions. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So on Tuesday, August 14th, um, there was an international call to action, a day of action in solidarity with Venezuela against 
U.S. and Canadian economic sanctions. The Canadian sanctions are somewhat more targeted towards specific officials, military and political, whereas U.S. economic sanctions are broader, um, targeting both individuals within the state and their assets or alleged assets abroad, as well as um, wide-sweeping economic sanctions that have had real detrimental effects on Venezuela's ability to acquire basic goods and imports, as well as having issues refinancing its debt. And essentially, you know, we had with Venezuela Analysis, as did many other organizations from around the world, uh, accompanied the presidential elections that occurred on May 20th. And hundreds, and if not thousands of people who came to accompany elections could see firsthand the ways in which these sanctions have had a detrimental impact on people's day-to-day lives. And, you know, the intention behind sanctions are not only targeting the state and preventing the state from exercising economic sovereignty, but also, you know, targeting the people on economic and psychological levels, and, you know, attempting to dissuade people and their trust and their commitment to a process that is attempting since 1999 to build 21st century socialism and alternatives to capitalism, which, you know, in our times right now, we're presented at a really critical crossroads, not just in Venezuela, but around the world, about what to do with the current set of circumstances and corporate greed um, and the ways in which that's affected people and the planet. So the day of action took place on Tuesday. We had folks tweet with the hashtag sanctions are war and hashtag end Venezuela sanctions. We also had folks continue to commit to the call of action and endorse the call of action as individuals and organizational sponsors. And we also had, you know, organizations in Canada and the United States organize small protests in solidarity um, outside of Venezuelan consulates um, in support or even outside of U.S. and Canadian consulates, respectively, to challenge and denounce these institutional measures. And, you know, we've seen sanctions used around the world as part of U.S. foreign policy, not just in Venezuela, but in the case of Syria and Iran, Korea, etc. And this type of foreign policy is very isolating, and also we've seen it in the case of Cuba, you know, six decades of a blockade that has really impacted, you know, material conditions on the ground for people in their communities. So we encourage everyone who's listening, particularly based in the United States and Canada or has family or friends based in the U.S. and Canada, to partake in this um, and to support this, this action, to challenge U.S. foreign policy against Venezuela. Because, you know, for many of us that are looking at the current um, political landscape and the way in which the U.S. is engaging with Venezuela, the aggression is heightening. And so economic sanctions in many ways are a prelude to military warfare and intervention. Um, and in the case of Venezuela, with the recent assassination attempts, we can only imagine the heights to which a proposed regime change or quote-unquote pro-democracy effort can go, um, as we've seen in other cases around the world. So if folks want more information in terms of how to get involved with the anti-sanctions campaign, you can go to the Alliance for Global Justice website, AFGJ. You can also search for um, End Venezuela Sanctions on Facebook, and you can write endvenezuelasanctions at gmail.com, and also check out the news coverage from Venezuela Analysis about the impacts of sanctions in Venezuela, um, you know, day-to-day conversations with, you know, regular everyday Venezuelans who are trying to make ends meet under essentially a, an economic blockade that is making their lives um, much more difficult than they need to be. Okay, well, unfortunately, that's all the time I have, but I thank you so much for joining me. I've been speaking with Jeanette Charles, International Solidarity Liaison with Venezuela, analysis.com.
Thank you so much for having us. This is a house that Jack built, y'all. Remember this house. This was the land that he worked by hand. It was the dream of an upright man. There was a room that was filled with love. It was a love that I was proud of. This is the life, the life that he planned. On the love, the same old love. In the house that Jack built. The house that Jack built. Remember this house. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. Following our unheard voices from the Occupy Lafayette Park Against Racism action held August 12th in Lafayette Park in front of the White House, anti-fascist activists organized a massive protest to what turned out to be a very small Unite the Right to rally. Opposition to that rally by right-wing extremists brought together a broad coalition of socialists, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and other social justice organizations and movements. The various MCs for the action included Yasmina Mrabet and Eugene Perrier, whose voice you hear first. We are close enough that we can make as much noise as we want and drown them out to the extent that we can. And I think, quite frankly, we can just make them look 
by showing how many of us there are and how few of them there will be, ultimately. I think we certainly know that they only are here in Washington, D.C., essentially, I mean, really anywhere commemorating this event as a slap in the face and a white supremacist terror attack. We also know that those are the most prevalent types of quote-unquote terror attacks in America. All you hear about is so-called Muslims, people they claim, well, those people are all terrorists over there, or whatever that means. But you never hear anything about how the most largest group of people committing these sorts of acts are exactly the people who supported the Unite the Right 1 rally, and at least some of whom are supporting the Unite the Right 2 rally. So let's not lose sight of who these people are, because a huge reason they want to come here today is to act as if that isn't who they are. Believe it or not, they are actually saying that their rally is not about hatred and bigotry. What? That's true. That's true. That's what they said. That's them. That's not me. I don't really know how you can say that when, well, one, you said they said it's okay to bring Confederate flags. So it's okay to celebrate a violent uprising that killed hundreds of thousands of people in defense of slavery. And which also lost. But somehow the, the rally isn't about violence and bigotry. They also had to put out a message that said, don't bring Nazi flags. I'll be honest with you, I've done many, many events over the years. I've never felt compelled to tell people not to bring Nazi flags. <laughs> so if you have to send that message to your core base, don't bring any Nazi regalia, that should give you a good sense of who they are. We don't know fully who's going to be speaking over there today, but we did see some names leaked. David Duke. The former leader of the Ku Klux Klan and an all-around racist, anti-Semitic, terrorist, terrible person. And then there's some other guy whose name I can't even remember. I hadn't heard of him. But the reason I remembered it is because he was a Holocaust denier. So, that's the boo, absolutely. So the only two people speaking publicly that we've seen at this event so far that's allegedly not about hatred and bigotry is the former leader of the Ku Klux Klan and a Holocaust denier and the guy who's bringing the rally together sponsored a rally with a bunch of neo-Nazi fascist Klan supporting groups that killed someone last year so I'm just going to go ahead and say that that rally is about racism it is about bigotry and more important than anything it's about them showing that they are willing to use violent acts to turn back the clock and to impose their will. And anything else is a complete and total distortion of the so-called Unite the Right to rally. That's right. First and foremost, I just really want to commend you all who have already gathered here today. A lot of you have been here very early because there are a lot of people who did not want you to be here today. There are a lot of people who said just ignore them. I think you know that that's a terrible argument because you're here, so I don't need to explain it. But I think the reality is that there are a lot of people who don't like to see strong, powerful movements come out in opposition to these people. And I really want to commend you all for being here today. Also, I have to say, and shout out to all my people from the D.C. area, I'm from D.C., but not just D.C., from around the country is here today. Yeah. Uh, D.C. is out here, but I know there are people from upstate New York, New York City, Baltimore City, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, New Haven. Buffalo! Buffalo? Okay, we have Buffalo in the house. I think I heard some Chicago. From the Netherlands. Oh, from the Netherlands. From the Netherlands. Okay, Netherlands. Okay. There we go. So we're international. We're international out here. 
introduce our next speaker, Christy Matthews. She's a housing advocate and organizer. Hello, everyone. Hello. I want to start by telling you a little bit about me. I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina. My mom is from Montgomery, Alabama. When my mom was four years old, her father was killed by a cop after he asked him to put his hands up. When my dad had me and my sister and we were in the back seat, a cop pulled him over to shoot and kill him and told him, the only reason I'm not going to kill you is because your children in the, are in the back seat. When my dad was 18 years old, he went to go get his hair cut and his white barber told him, I don't know what's happening, but they're killing black people, go home. This is my history. This is what I grew up learning. What I grew up learning was hate will breathe through, come through, and take over your world if you don't fight back. What they are counting on is us sitting down. What they are counting on is us being quiet. But we have to stand up. We have to fight back. When Trump was elected, many people said, look at what America's turning into. I beg to differ. America was always this. America was always built on capitalistic racism. America was always built on a system that believed you can take land for people who've owned it forever, and you can take people from a place that they live forever and make them do what you want them to do. The only thing that changed was people stood up. And what happened when people stood up? They changed the system. They realized they couldn't be out and up front and as racist as they wanted to be, so they went and they did it hidden. All Trump did was allow them to remove their mask. All Trump did was tell them it's okay to be racist. It's okay to be sexist. It's okay to be homophobic. But more importantly, it is okay for you to host a racist, homophobic, sexist rally on our nation's capital because you have a right to speak. That's bullshit. We live in a society where this is okay to occur. But it's not okay for young mothers and young fathers to organize rallies and events when their children are gunned down by the police. It's not okay for people who are homeless to say we deserve better than a cot and a cold meal. It is not okay for people who we've incarcerated to say we deserve more than what you're giving us. We can't do that. We can't fight mass incarceration. We can't ask for our Medicare to be covered. We can't ask for people dying from cancer to be treated. But it's okay for you racist assholes to come out here and speak your truth. But what we have to understand is this truth is America's truth. But what's more than that is us. We represent the actual America. We represent what needs to occur. We represent what needs to happen. So what I encourage you is when you leave today, don't stop fighting. Don't stop fighting. Don't stop fighting. Coming out for an action is beautiful. And I am grateful and I'm amazed. But they are destroying our country. They are destroying our communities. They are destroying our children. Our children are going up in a world where they think it is okay for no. people to be outwardly racist towards okay. them. Not okay. Come on. Not okay. It's we can't okay. know what this information is. So we need to make sure we stand up, we fight back, we demand the truth, and we hit it from head on. And we shut it down. We shut it down. Every level. The outward, I'm racist, I'm homophobic, I don't give a... And also, the people on the hill making the policies and the decisions that allow gentrification to happen. That allow homelessness to happen. We need to fight all of that. Because it's the same 
charge and we need to take back our system. Take back our system from capitalism.
replay it. So, so here's the thing, everyone. While people are telling us, oh, don't come and demonstrate because you're going to normalize or contribute to the KKK and Nazis, at that same moment, the government and the media are protecting them, trying to transport them, and now giving them a, ma a national platform. If we weren't here, these people would be celebrating a mass victory on the very day that they killed Heather Heyer, on the very day that they ran a car into peaceful protests. If we weren't here, the Nazis and the Klan would have the run of the place. And I want to ask you this question. Do you believe that David Duke, Jason Kessler, the Nazis, and the Klan would dare march into Lafayette Park if they didn't have the protection of the police department of this city? We, we the people, are perfectly capable of letting the Klan and the Nazis know in an unmistakable way that they are not welcome, that they will not be accepted. Whose city? Whose city? Our city. Whose city? Our city. Whose country? Whose country? That's why we say no Nazis. No fascist USA. No Nazis. No fascist USA. I want to. I want to finish on on this point. As bad as the Nazis and the Klan are, let's face facts. It's not just the Nazis and the Klan. As Yasmina said, working class families are being driven out of D.C. Not from the Klan, but from real estate developers and gentrifiers and the bankers. The schools in Washington, D.C. are being gentrified for the benefit of affluent, mainly white people. That's not coming from the Klan and the Nazis. That's the government. That's the real estate developers. That's the system. The so-called free market system means we'll drive you out and give your homes to other people who have more money. When we stand here against the Klan and the Nazis, we have to make all the connections. We have to connect the dots. Because let's stop the Klan and Nazis, but it won't by itself make sure that D.C. is an affordable place to live. Yes. That it won't guarantee that the police department in Washington, D.C. will continue to carry out not just surveillance against political activists, but violence, especially against black and Latino communities. We're, we're drawing the lines and making the connections. But first, first and foremost, we're here today. We have overcome the odds, the obstacles, the naysayers. And who's going to win today? Who's going to win? We are going to win. We are going to win because Lafayette Park is going to continue to fill up with all of us. Black, Latino, Asian, Arab, white, young, old, gay, straight. We're going to do this.
for families being reunited with their children. We stand for the right to vote and against voter suppression. We stand for our neighbor, either black, brown, yellow, red, or white. We stand because we believe in diversity. We believe that people we should celebrate who come from different places. We should not build walls, but in fact our agenda has to be to tear walls down, to make the society a stronger society built upon inclusion and diversity where we all learn from each other and nobody is afraid of anybody. divided. 
They know it's really profitable for them if we hate each other. But the only thing that can defeat the racism, violence, and exploitation that plagues our communities is solidarity. When we stand together, real change in another world is possible, and people in power hate that. And through our voices and our music, we will make it extraordinarily clear that Nazis are not welcome in our city, that the Klan and white supremacists are not welcome in our city, and that racism and bigotry are not welcome in our city and our country. Solidarity, D.C. Thank you. Next, I want to bring up Norm Clement from New Haven, Connecticut. All right, everyone. I want to dial it back for a minute. We want to mention where we are in this city, in this country right now. We are on indigenous land. Right here, this is Piscataway territory. This is Delaware territory. We always have to remember that. We have to remember where we are, wherever we are. I heard chance of our country. No, it's not. It's native country. It's indigenous country. We've been fighting. I'm part native. My name is Norman Momowitu Clement. I'm uh, Penobscot and Quinnipiac. And our people have been fighting against this fascist racism, white supremacist from, for 524 years. And we have never given up. So when native rights are under attack, what do we do? When indigenous rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. And we'll have to leave today's show on that note. Thanks again to Jeanette Charles and Chantel James and Lydia Curtis. And a special thank you to Floyd DJ Waheed Aaron for today's Aretha Franklin mixes. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Verm. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.